Thank you for joining us today on the Reach Community Church Podcast. We hope this week's message encourages and blesses you as we dive into God's Word together. Our mission at Reach is to see lives changed by Christ together in community by loving God, loving people, and reaching our world. We'd love to have you join us next Sunday. You can learn more about our mission at reachcommunitychurch.com. This is Alan Artiga. Uh, he is our youth pastor here at Reach. He's been with us for like eight years, I think. Uh, been youth pastor for three? Yeah, he's killing it. Youth group is going great. You should bring your kids here on Wednesday night, 638. Okay, there you go. <laughs> great. Thank you, man. Uh, good morning. Uh, as Pastor Heath already introduced me, my name is Alan, and as Pastor Heath already introduced me as well, I, uh, I am the student's pastor here at Rich Community Church. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning. I hope this uh, rainy day finds you well. Um, so today, uh, we are going to be talking about the sanctification process of the believer and the many struggles that it represents. And let me start with this. And uh, um, Greg makes fun of me because I uh, go to the dictionary to spell out what a word means. So we're going to start with this word. What is a paradox? Uh, a paradox, as Webster Dictionary describes it, uh, can be defined... As two seemingly contradictory statements where both happen to be true. And nowhere does that seem to cause so much confusion than with statements that show up in the Bible. Uh, in his commentary on Philippians, Pastor John MacArthur writes these rather interesting questions. From the earliest days of the church, the relationship between the power of God and the responsibility of the believers has been debated. Is the Christian life a matter of passive trust or of active, active obedience? Is it all God's doing, all the believers doing, or a combination of both? The same question arises, he writes, about salvation itself. Is it all God's doing, or is there a requirement on man's part in response to the command to believe the gospel? End quote. So as we study the Bible, we can see Scripture emphasizes both. It's clear that salvation involves both, both God's sovereignty and human response. In John 6:44, Jesus declared, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But then in Acts 16.31, we have the command, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We see here that salvation is the initiation of God's, but it, it is always revealed itself in the faith and confession and repentance of men. Salvation is not by human works, yet it is always through personal faith. And as we continue to read God's word, we can find other doctrines that involves seeming paradoxes such as that Jesus Christ is fully God yet fully men. That scripture was written by human authors yet he claims to be God's words. That the gospel is offered to the whole world but applied only to the elect. That God secures, eternally secures the believer's salvation yet the believer is commanded to persevere. 
And as Christians, we sometimes, sometimes try to reconcile every doctrine in a humanly rational way, which at times causes us to be drawn to extremes. And, you know, within, within my own beliefs and, and experiences, reading up on others' beliefs and speaking with others about their beliefs, I have found that to be true over and over again. Uh, might be prophecy or election or free will, or evangelistic methods, or gifts of the Spirit, one side of the coin becomes so much a person's passion that that imbalance is the net result. And we sometimes tend to emphasize one aspect of, of God's Word at the expense of another. And as challenging as all these, all these issues are for all of us, one that is at the top of the food chain is the issue of sanctification, growing in your faith and walk with Christ. I mean, is it, is it up to God to make you grow in your walk and in your faith, or, or is it up to you? Let go and let God, you know. Um, in a nutshell, we can understand that sanctification or, or spiritual growth this way. The growth of a believer requires your diligent effort, and it will never happen without it. But your diligent effort is enabled by the power of God, and it can't happen without that either. This is exactly the paradox presented by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, as he begins to take the attitude and action of Christ's humility and apply them to the, to the Christian and the church. So get ready to hear these two statements presented all in one voice. And let's read. We'll, we'll start with Philippians 2, 12, and 13. But we're going to start at the end of verse 2, 12. Um, and then verse 13. So the last part of verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good purpose. So work out your salvation. And God is at work in you. So inevitably the question may arise, who is it more of? Is your Christian walk and growth and service up to you or up to God? Funny enough, um, Paul is actually going to make no attempt to reconcile these two seemingly paradoxical statements in Philippians. But what he will do is to move from the example of Christ's humility and will begin to apply it to our own lives and hearts. It will require every ounce of diligence on our part to follow Christ's example. And it will require every bit of power on God's part in order for, for us to follow Christ's example. One, one side of the coin is not going to eliminate the other. And Paul happens to know that it's going to take more than an example on the outside. We're going to need power on the inside. And as we see Christ's example... You know, I will say that the vast majority of us pretty, you know, much agree with it. And, and we, you know, we agree that we should follow it. And we're amazed by it and we're moved by it. But now how do we go about practicing it? Verses 12 and 13 begins to, to provide that answer. Prior, prior, prior to that, Paul gave us back in verses 5, 11, Christ's example of humility and obedience. And now in verses 12 and 13... He's, he's giving us the application, and I'm not going to show you verses 5 and 11. You can go back and read it if you like. Uh, we're going to focus on, on verse 12 and 13. And 
notice how tenderly Paul adds the term at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, my beloved. You know, Paul isn't saying, hey, you people in Philippi just keep messing up. And you guys need to grow up and, and work it out. No, he, he says, my beloved. And, and uh, what Paul is doing here is that he's modeling a kind shepherd who understands the disappointments of the Philippian believers. He knows the conflicts they're facing. He knows their fears and their needs. And he fully understands an adversarial culture where the gospel is anything but appreciated. One author actually writes, Paul is not delivering some sort of indifferent, uncaring directive. He is affectionately calling them to follow Christ's example of humility and obedience. And as we read these two verses of of Paul's opening application, uh, it seems that Paul is insightfully pulling out the challenges we face in growing up in Christ. He's he's actually drawing out in in a very kind manner the truth about our, our tendencies, which we all have. And they get in the way of, of humility and, and obedience. So as we go through this text, uh, the points made here will put into words what Paul is kindly and affectionately yet carefully pointing out. And what Paul points out effectively provides solutions to our sanctification process as we grow in humility and obedience. So first, uh, Paul is implying this truth, that we have a tendency to stray. Uh, Look at the very first part of verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence. And in this beginning text, we can actually begin to hear what is graciously being suggested. You have obeyed my authority when I was with you. Now be very careful and even more diligent to be obedient while I'm away. Like an experienced mother or father, it's one thing for children to obey when you're around. It's entirely a different challenge when they aren't around. It's uh, one thing for a child to share his toys and behave when mom's standing right there. And even that doesn't work out sometimes. But it's another thing uh, to behave when mom leaves the room. Paul implies here uh, to these believers in Philippians, grown-ups have the same problem. What do you do when, when nobody's watching what things are, are you entertaining uh, in your mind? Or how quickly and how much do we need to slow down when we see a police, a police officer standing right by the door? And by the way, to, 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 to share this with you real quick, to have law and order is a good thing. Um, it happens to be what one author calls the pressure of presence. The pressures of authority in our lives have a way to keep us in line, or, or they help remind us when we haven't. An author told an incident uh, one morning as she was hurrying their 11-year-old daughter to school. She writes, I stopped at a red light at an intersection and then turned right on red where it was prohibited. Uh-oh, I said out loud, realizing my mistake, I just made an illegal turn. My daughter looked behind us and then up at me and said, oh, it's all right. Uh, The police car behind us just did the same thing. (laughs) 
reminder uh, was, was well on, on their way. So Paul effectively says to the Philippians, you've been obedient in my presence, but now I want you to obey even more when the pressure of, pre- when the pressure of my presence isn't there in Philippi. You've been careful to listen to the truth. Make sure you obey it, even if I'm not there telling you all over again. And he's not patronizing them. He's just pointing out something that happens to be true. And unlike little children or misbehaving motorists, uh, we evidence spiritual growth by how we behave when no one's looking. Or to put it even more, more crudely, we better behave even when we can get away with it. Growing in sanctification, growing reputation, I'm sorry, growing reputation is, is based on how you act when, when people are watching. Uh, growing in sanctification is how you act when people are not watching. As we mature in our sanctification, the pressures of presence moves from, from, from an external authority like a parent or a policeman to an internal authority who happens to be the Spirit of God. Uh, in a very real sense, growing in our sanctification means we are coming to understand and submit to the pressure of the presence of God. He's watching, and that's a good thing, uh, because we have a tendency to stray. Secondly, uh, we have a tendency to stall. Uh, look at verse 12 again. But how much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling? By the way, let's make sure we understand that Paul here is writing to Christians. Uh, he isn't defining how you get salvation. He, he, he isn't defining how you work out salvation. He's referring to how you demonstrate salvation. And if you, did you notice that Paul does not say here, work for your salvation, work up your salvation, or work toward your salvation. He writes, work out your salvation, live it out. Paul is effectively saying, growing as a Christian is going to require a daily workout. Are, and are we willing of that? And thankfully, we don't have to, to ask if God is. Uh, his willingness is already at work within us so that whenever we're prepared to engage, His power is prepared to enable. Paul specifically tells the growing believer to work out their, their salvation. And, and keep in mind... That throughout the New Testament, uh, salvation comes in three tenses. First is past salvation. Our redemption and inclusion into the family of God by faith in Christ alone. That is past and forever settled and secure. Second, there is future salvation. Where John writes in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And third, the now. The time between our our past salvation, our new birth, and our future salvation, our glorified eternal state, is this present salvation. And we call this present salvation sanctification. This is the process of spiritual growth that Paul is referring to here in Philippians 2.12. This present salvation is saving us from the power of sin... One temptation at a time where we have the ability to say no. And, and that's an ongoing process with ups and downs, forwards and backwards, mountaintops and valleys, home runs and, and strikeouts along the way. 
This present salvation is the process of sanctification where the believer is being challenged to demonstrate his growth in Christ, having been redeemed in the past and on his way to being glorified in the future. And Paul even, even compels them to go the, the extra mile. Do not slow down. Don't stop. Now, the, the, the reason we know Paul is encouraging these believers from stalling is because of this verb to work. Back in school, I learned that this verb Paul uses in the Greek literally, literally means to work on to the finish. Uh, it has the idea of making progress toward completing a goal. And, and what is the goal Paul will have in mind here? Within the application of this context, Paul is exhorting them to demonstrate the humility of Jesus Christ and obedience to the will of, of God the Father. Don't stop, he urges them forward. Don't stop halfway, finish. The goal is the attitude, the goal is the attitude of humility in Christ. And the finish line is the completion of his work in us when we are glorified in Christ through, through death or, or the end times. Again, Paul is a gracious encourager. Uh, he knows that finishing something is a lot harder than starting something. I mean, a lot of us uh, decide uh, to, to, to read the Bible in a year, which is probably why the book of Genesis is the most read book in the entire Bible. Is, the, is getting to Revelation that's the hardest. Finishing is difficult. Uh, the website Team Stage ran a study where it found 70% of projects people committed to did not finish. And discovered that 9 out of 10 people quit when they were only halfway. I saw a statistic that showed who, people who joined college only 60% finished. Almost, almost half of them didn't. And if you're crazy enough to go into grad school, uh, like Leslie and other people I know, uh, only 40% of them finish. And if you want to uh, 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 explore an illustration of, of this tendency, uh, you can look at the biography of Nehemiah. Uh, he was the Jewish leader who rebuilt the walls of, of Jerusalem that had been entirely destroyed for, for generations. And we won't go over what he specifically wrote, but we can discover that the greatest threats from his enemies, along with his most discouraging moments in his service, occurred when the walls of Jerusalem were halfway built. And uh, I don't know, perhaps like no other time in the completion of any project, the temptation to quit is never stronger than when you work so hard and yet you're only halfway finished. There's, there's no more likely time to throw in the towel. Or as believers, we stop pressing after we've accomplished something for the Lord. Or, 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 or we've only taken a few steps of faith. And, and perhaps this is why Paul uses this verb to work out as something continual. He is literally commanding us to continually keep at it. Keep on working all the way to the finish line in our walk with Christ. By the way, I, I also learned that this verb was used in Paul's day for someone working in a mine deep below in order to reach all the precious stones. It was also uh, used for someone working on a field so that they could win the greatest harvest possible. 
because uh, an idle farmer who stalls after planting and wants little to do with weeding and fertilizing and, and guarding his or her crops should probably not expect much of a, of a harvest. A miner who, in the dim light of those cramped conditions in that thankless cavern, shrugs off continuous hard work, will probably not be expected to find gold or silver or diamonds. So Paul tells us, don't give up as you work through the redundancy of planting and weeding day after day after day. Don't stop digging no matter the cramped conditions and difficulties of that thankless cave. Uh, A very famous Christian writer calls this the long obedience in the same uh, direction. And he wrote, when the path of obedience becomes steep and difficult or even dangerous, pleasure seekers look for an easier way. They become religious tourists who are hunting for entertainment, instantaneous enlightenment, or emotional excitement. A religious tourist that will jump on the newest rides and, then the, and take the quickest shortcuts. But they will not be found with those believers on the long, hard road following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Who, as Philippians 2.8 tells us, was obedient to death. So, is death to self? Obeying Christ over the long haul every single day? While waiting on the final resolution of all things to come in the glorious kingdom of God with humility and obedience. Waiting while still working on towards the goal of his glory. Is that what, is, is that what, what growing in our sanctification means? Paul says yes. And this is the funny thing. As soon as we take a step or two in that direction, as soon as... We're, we're making progress. The enemy in our flesh, here's the enemy from hell, whisper in our ear, man, aren't you something? I mean, how wonderful are you in the body of Christ? Look at how you're doing. There are certainly not a lot of Christians nearly as dedicated as you. They really don't compare to you. You are special. And with that tendency in mind, which happens to all of us, Paul moves on to remind us that we not only have a tendency to stray, a tendency to stall, but thirdly, we have a tendency to become arrogant. We tend to become conceited and full of ourselves, especially when we're advancing, accomplishing something good. So Paul adds here a perspective that will help us from getting too caught up with, with, our, pro, with our progress and sanctification in, in verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't write with glory and self-congratulation and pride as if we deserve anything. But he wrote with fear and trembling. This fear and trembling idea or words are an Old Testament terminology that references God as our audience. Fear and trembling is another way of saying to be in awe of and in deep respect for the glory and holy perfection of God. 
The word fear here is phobos in Greek, which means terror. And the word for trembling is the word tromos, which gives us our word for tremor. Isaiah used this for the humble person who trembles at God's word. Isaiah 66 too. To fear and to tremble carries the idea of reverential fear and a holy concern to treat God with the honor he deserves. One Greek scholar centuries ago wrote that this phrase, to fear and tremble, means that you have a tremble anxiousness to get it right. You, you, you simply want to get it right. And because of the greatness and holiness and majesty and goodness of Christ, you want to depend on him just the right way. Paul effectively writes here, work out your salvation with a kind of awe and respect and humility before God, who is our audience. He has revolutionized the way we live. We greatly appreciate him, and we don't want to be disrespectful in approaching him or walking with him. I mean, how terrible is it that after all the sleepless nights and hard work you've invested in your children, their disrespect can become incredibly hurtful? And what we've done for our kids measures up in no way what Jesus has done for us. I mean, just think how much you love your kids. And that does not compare to the love God has for us. And so with, tremble, with trembling anxiousness, to live right, you work out your salvation before him. This kind of attitude can potentially combat any temptation to become arrogant. Work out your salvation with humbleness, respect, and awe. None of us should be arrogant in the presence of, of the glory of God. But since we do have that tendency, uh, Paul delivers the reminder. So we have a tendency to stray. We have a tendency to stall. We have a tendency to become arrogant. And fourthly, uh, we have a tendency to steal. In other words, uh, we have a tendency to take the credit, to craft idols out of, out of our own accomplishments. Paul reminds us here that the credit and the glory must never be stolen or claimed by any of us. Why? Because verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For who makes you different from anyone else? And I love this because that's like, well, what's so special about you? You're no different than anyone else. For who makes you different from anyone else? What have you done that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Pride, which is nothing more than stealing credit from God, was already nibbling away at the church in Philippi. Paul is attempting to, to cut it away by showing the example of humility in and through the life and death of Christ. And here Paul reminds them, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And here's the paradox. We're commanded to work hourly, but now we're told that we work hourly as a result of God working inwardly, which in the context of humility uh, is Paul's way of reminding us that God alone deserves the credit because ultimately... He was at work in us, both to will or to want, and to do or to act. I mean, how humbling is that? That He is the one that's allowed us to see another day. 
That he is the one that's allowed us to have what we want. That he is the one that's allowed us to be born or come to this wonderful country that we take for granted every day and in some way or another are allowing it to go into the sewer. Anything good that we've done is because God did it through us. Um, Any great idea we've come up with is because God ordained it through us. Any wonderful inspiration or longing we've gotten is because God gave it to us. And if we're too prideful to accept those words or ashamed of them, Luke 9, 26 tells us, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and and of the holy angels. So can we say these following statements uh, with Paul? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2.20. The next one, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Colossians 1.29. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. Truly believing in this. Uh, can be some of the most telling evidence in our growth in sanctification. Anything good that I desire was a desire he put in me. Anything good that I received or anything good that I did was something he did through me. Ultimately, it is God who is at work. And this is another neat thing I learned in school about this word work. Uh, The word work it's a different word than what Paul told us earlier in verse 12, to work out your salvation. Here, in this phrase, it is God who is at work in you. The word changes to, in the Greek to energo, which gives us our word for energy. Which again creates this, this wonderful yet complex idea. God, the infinite worker, empowers you to do his work while we do it. And as, as one author put it, when our work is empowered by his work, our work becomes an expression of his work. And I, I don't know uh, what may be going on in your life. Uh, I don't know the limitations or challenges you may have. And I don't know if life right now is just too much. But let me share this last thing with you. Uh, This is an example of how this wonderful speaker and author uh, taps, has tapped into the Lord's strength. Um, Johnny, and and some of you may may already know her story, Johnny Erickson Tara is a quadriplegic who has impacted the lives of so many people with her testimony. Uh, She wrote in a magazine article how she was the speaker at a Christian women's conference and a woman said, Johnny, you always look so together. So happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Johnny responded, I don't do it. You know, very Christian of her, but yeah, I don't do it. In fact, let me tell you how I woke up this morning. This is my average day. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make me coffee, I pray, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath. 
get me dressed, sit me up in my chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take on to this day. But you do, Lord. May I have yours. And she goes, she goes on to say, so whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. And in reality, it is only what I begged from God today. Uh, if I can invite the, the worship team up, please. So he, herein lies the tension. Uh, God isn't going to make you open your Bible and study it. He isn't going to kick you out of bed and into a discipleship group. He isn't going to fill out that form and drive you to a worship practice or a meeting for youth leaders or to volunteer in the nursery or any other place or for coffee. He isn't going to make you save money for a mission trip or to give to the poor. He isn't going to make you testify uh, of his grace to your neighbor. His work in us and for us. Um, does not eliminate our responsibility to work for him. And yet, when we do work, it is through his energizing strength to do what is right, which doesn't make obedience easy, but it does make it possible. And when we desire to act, we understand that it was first and foremost his desire. And when we accomplish it, it is for his good pleasure and glory. And as a result, we steal none of that for ourselves, but humbly thank Him for the privilege of laboring for Him and with Him and by means of Him. And so this is the truth about our tendencies. We have a tendency to stray, so stay alert. Paul isn't here to whisper in your ear. Your close friends in the Lord aren't seated with you in front of the television or in front of the computer or, next, or right next to you when you're looking at your phone or whenever you're alone. How then will you act? When you are pressured by the presence of an authority. Stay, let's stay alert to that greater danger. We have a tendency to stall, so stay the course. Uh, in fact, Paul shares, uh, you know, put on more coal, add more steam, don't slow down. Don't throw in the towel, work through the halfway challenges of redundancy and weariness. Keep up the daily workout of your salvation. Uh, we have a tendency to become arrogant. So stay fearfully respectful in his presence and aware of his unimaginable power and greatness. Lastly, we have a tendency to still so stay grateful uh, that he has chosen to work in you and through you for his good pleasure. And the energy comes from him uh, and the, the glory belongs, belongs to, to him alone. Uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to be here today, Lord. Uh, I thank you that we were able to listen to your word today. And I pray that you continue to give us the strength, that you continue to give us the passion, that you grow the strength, that you go, grow the passion in us, Lord, uh, because we need it, uh, every one of us. So thank you for your freedom. Thank you for your love. In your name we pray. Thank you for joining us today on the Reach Community Church podcast. We'd love to have you join us next Sunday. You can learn more about our mission at reachcommunitychurch.com.